right, so we've been going through the book of Matthew. We finished uh, the parables. Jesus is getting into some serious teaching. And we're going to find in Matthew 26 that he's going to lay uh, um, a time clock on the disciples. It's the heaviest he's given them to date. And that clock starts ticking, and it's a 48-hour time clock. You guys used to see that uh, crime-solving 48 hours. Uh, you know, the, the murder has to be solved within 48 hours, or it just falls into a pile of unresolved mysteries. And so he's going to give them a 48-hour clock, and he's basically, in the very first verses, is going to say, I'm going to be crucified in 48 hours. You've got 48 hours left with me. That's a big statement. I mean, if someone you love said to you, I'm going to be dead in 48 hours, you, you'd be real attentive to everything they have to pour, pour into you. And then in the passage, they're going to go through a, an account of scripture that actually occurs in all four gospels. Uh, this account occurs in all four gospels. One account is different than the other three and probably doesn't relate to the other three. And we're going to take a look at, at in a way, all four of them briefly, but we're going to focus on this. And before I get into it, I want to share with you, I, uh, I was blessed to see a number of you uh, at the event for the gubernatorial candidate, Travis Allen. I got the privilege to introduce him, um, and I sat at the table uh, waiting for him to arrive. His plane was late, and they, they put me up in the front because <laughs> I'm important, and uh, no, I, and I, I sat up there, and um, uh, he hadn't arrived yet, and, and I was talking with the, the, this lady that's just a dear friend, and then she introduced me to a daughter and her mother, and the, the woman's name was Angela, and introduced me to her daughter. Angela had a fascinating story. She was just so vibrant and so filled with joy, and she talked about how uh, she was born into uh, a family who her father was uh, an Arab Muslim, her mother was German, and um, the mother converted to Islam, and she was raised as a Muslim for the entirety of her life, came to Christ uh, at the Vineyard Fellowship in Malibu, um, her, her family basically renounced her. They were done with her. And, um, and then her parents later divorced. Uh, she's had no contact with her father or that side of the family. Um, and I'm looking at a woman who, you, you know, she's had a train wreck of a life in regards to her family divorce and confusion religiously and all the things that she's had to endure. And yet I'm looking at her daughter and she's just so filled with joy. And this woman's filled with joy. And there's just such an excitement. And you know, I, I was so encouraged by her, and she actually knew um, some folks from our fellowship, and uh, though her husband, she, she married a Catholic man, they attend, she goes to Calvary Community, and then they go to St. Jude periodically and back and forth, and you think, how could you be so joyful with such confusion? And she just said, you know, the Lord has been so good to me. And as I sat with her, I thought, you, you've probably had a lot of heartache, and she said, yeah. She said, but God has been so good to me. And she just kept repeating that. I was really, really blessed by it. That was the highlight of the evening. It, uh, you'd think it was, you know, being with uh, the gubernatorial candidate and all the other. I really was touched by that. It, it really ministered to my heart. And then as I was preparing this study, I just realized how significant uh, that impact it had on me. And I think what God wanted to impart to me, and I pray imparts to you today, because this passage is dealing with um, forgiveness, and so we're going we're gonna to jump into that. And some of you are like, oh, I don't want to do that. I'll tell you what, we're going to go to the forgiveness side. You do whatever you want while we're doing this. You just make up whatever you want, and we'll, we'll go from that end. Uh, before we stand for the reading of the word, Lord, I, I want to I lay out to you um, kind of the breakdown. Because there's, there's four accounts of this in the scripture. In both uh, Mark, John, and Matthew, we're going to find this account. 
There's a separate account in the book of Luke, Luke chapter seven. And though they seem that they're all the same story, they aren't. One is dealing with a prostitute who um, anoints Jesus's his body with oil, oil of spikenard. And the other three is Mary, the sister of Martha and the sister of Lazarus. And she's anointing Jesus's head with oil. Luke's account is way out here in the atmosphere and doesn't even fall into line chronologically. Uh, but these other three accounts and some scholars say, well, they're one in the same. And other scholars say, no, there's, there's two separate accounts. Some scholars take John's account out and say, there's, there's three separate events. Uh, in the reading of it, you can see there's three specific events and you can see that chronologically and, and most of the scholars hold to this. And then they say that this third one is a, or this fourth one is a different account. Now this fourth one, we're actually going to look at it because it ties in with a verse in the book of John, starting John seven fifty three to John eight eleven. Interesting passage of scripture. This is where a woman's caught in adultery. And, and scholars believe that the woman caught in adultery is the same woman in Luke chapter seven. But here's the problem. John seven fifty three to John eight eleven. If you have a new American standard Bible or an ESV Bible, they're called the Alexandrian text. We study out of the Masoretic text, which is new King James version. And as you know, Ed stood up and said, I've memorized an NASB. I just want to tell you the best version of the Bible. The most is the one you read. Thank, thanks for spoiling my... You did that in Israel. You're doing it here. I just, it, it hurt. No, I'm kidding. I feel sorry for folks that have to sit through that a thousand times, but the idea is the best version of the Bible is the one you read. So that's okay, Ed. NASB. Some of you have the new, nearly inspired version, uh, the NIV. The Masoretic text is where we get the King James Version, New King James Version, Alexandrian texts are different. My point is this. John 7.53 to John 8.11, all these Alexandrian texts say that verse doesn't exist. It's not in the early manuscripts. Masoretic text and New King, or King James say it does exist. And you're looking at it going, why is it there? And as you follow the chrono- chronology of John, all of a sudden it, it drops in. And it's kind of a cool story. And it's touching. And we're actually going to look at it. And I believe with all my heart, it's supposed to be there. And we're going to study it and glean from it. And Lord willing, be affected and changed by it. Amen? Amen. But we're going to begin our time in the text that we're studying. Matthew 26. Let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. All right, here we go. Verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, all those parables I just took you through in the weeks previous, as Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. Fellas, I got 48 hours and that was a shocker to him. I'll be dead in 48 hours. Then the chief priests, the scribes and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask, a very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. 
But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me, you do not have always 48 hours. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her, as we're doing now. And then look at verse 14. Then one of the 12 called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they, they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. And then you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read it to you. It's out of Matthew 27, verse five, going further as we'll cover in the coming weeks. Uh, when he received that money, it says that after Jesus had been crucified, that he threw the pieces of silver into the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. <laughs> now, if you would turn to John 13, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John chapter 13, John 13. We got Judas, he's on the scene. We got to learn a little bit about Judas. He doesn't have a band called Judas Priest. <laughs> Anyone in here named Judas, by the way? Didn't think so. Anyone in here named Hitler? Didn't think so. All right, here we go. Uh, John chapter 13, look at verse two with me. The supper being ended, the devil having already put put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot. And everyone say Simon's son to betray Jesus. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read that again. When I say Judas Iscariot, you boo, boo. And then when I get this, then, I, then you're going to repeat out loud Simon's son. Okay, here we go. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, boo. Simon's son to betray him. So who is Judas's father? No, not Simon's son. <laughs> I know it's daylight saving time. Let's just get the moths out of the skull and try it again. Who is Judas's father? Simon. Again? Simon. Good. Here we go. Let's go to uh, verse 18. Jesus saying, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But that the scripture may be fulfilled, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. He's quoting out of Psalm 41, and this is a psalm that was written when Ahithophel betrayed David. David's heart was broken. Ahithophel was his best friend and his wisest counselor. And Ahithophel sided with Absalom. It broke David's heart. He wrote this, and now Jesus who inspired David to write that when he was hurt by Ahithophel is using it as a prophetic statement towards Judas. Guess what Ahithophel did with his life? Guess what Judas did with his life? Okay, let's pray. Lord, we've got a lot to take a look at and I pray that you by your wisdom and by your truth would keep us aligned and order our steps and bless our hearts and prepare us to receive all that we just desperately need from your word, which is living and breathing and sharper than a two-edged sword. God, I pray that we would receive it today, that our hearts would be prepared to do such and that we'd be forever challenged and changed for your glory and that we would experience life and life more abundant.
And so we commit all this to you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, have a seat, please. Now, as I said earlier, we're going to take a look at the obscure passage that some scholars believe shouldn't be in the scriptures, but it's there. And we're going to see it tied in with the fourth account that doesn't connect with the one we're reading of a woman pouring oil over Jesus's head and then wiping his feet with her hair and tears and all that mixed together. Before we venture into that area, I want to take a look at the text because we really come to understand the text. And so we're going to study the text. So let's come back to Matthew 26 and we're going to take a look at it. Came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, and those are the parables we've been teaching for previous weeks. He turns to his disciples and he He says, you know that after two days is the Passover and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. And he says, fellas, in 48 hours, I'm going to be dead. Now, he sees the finish line. And, you know, it's it's reminiscent of uh, my family. You know, a lot of times people are taken out of our lives quickly. And we never had a chance to say goodbye. There are other times where people are dying and we're by their bedside and we have that chance to say goodbye. And I always feel as though those times in a hospital or hospice or at home are holy moments. Of all the senses of the human body, the last sense to go as a body is declining is a sense of hearing. They hear everything you're saying. And the Bible says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And and you're a captive audience, basically. And everything your family members are sharing with you, you're hearing, and it's, it's, it's between heaven and earth, and it's processing, and it's this mystical time that is just amazing. Many people have survived a near-deathbed experience and remembered everything that everyone had said to them. And it is a very profound moment, and, and it doesn't return void. And if you're speaking to them about the things of the Lord, trust me, they're listening. Be bold. I've heard amazing stories of folks that have shared and watched as lives have been transformed in these moments where someone sees the finish line. Well, this is a finish line. And in my own family, it was very similar. My, my mom, who had come to Christ late in life, <clears throat> my dad having been put in a home with Alzheimer's, my mom uh, had lung cancer. She had smoked for many years. She was in her 80s, and um, she went and had surgery. She had a small spot on her lung, went in to have surgery, which... You know, many folks say, why, why did she have surgery in her 80s? And, and I wasn't the one to tell her not to do it. And she wanted to just get it out of her body. And I, I didn't like the idea. I thought she should just get it radiated and just kind of extend it. And, you know, but she, she went for the surgery. Well, it didn't go too well. And here she was after the surgery and this frail body is, and she was a vibrant woman. She wasn't frail by any means, but the surgery had taken a lot out of her. And there she was trying to recover. And, you know, she's, I walk into her hospital room and she's looking forlorn out the window. And I realize at that moment I'm walking in not as, as her son, but as her pastor. Because she looks over her shoulder and she sees me and she looks back out the window and she's contemplative and she says, Rob, did I make a mistake? And I said, Mom, what do you mean? She said, Well, I'm having the surgery in my 80s. I said, Mom, there's no mistakes in the economy of God's grace. The Apostle Paul says, forgetting what is behind, striving for what is ahead, taking hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of you. I mean, if it was a mistake in the surgery, it's okay. If it was 
what you were supposed to do, you're going to live longer. And if the surgery didn't work, then you can see the finish line and you can really have a noble passing into eternity and, and really work that time to resolve and reconcile. She pondered it for a moment. She said, yes. It was, it was a fascinating moment. Fascinating moment. And it was one of the most profound passings I've ever seen. I, I was going to show you a video, but I, I, there's, a, there's a picture, we, a video that I took when my mom had this fighter pilot mask on and, and we weren't sure whether or not to bring my dad in uh, to see her because my dad was in the throes of Alzheimer's. He didn't speak anymore and he was in a home. And my mom had told me that time when she was looking out the window, I said, mom, what do you miss the most about dad? And she says, his humor, the disease had taken. He was the funniest man, funniest man I've ever met. And she said the disease took the humor. Well, we did end up bringing dad in as she was getting ready to be with the Lord. And she was still coherent and with us that her lungs had collapsed. And the minute we took off the oxygen mask, she'd pass. And she, she wanted to do this and there was no recovering. And so we had this mask on her and we brought dad in to see her. My dad walked in, the video shows that he walks in, he starts kissing the mask. It's a fighter pilot mask. It's like the full, but he knew it was her and he just started kissing the mask. And we're just standing back in awe. And then my dad backs up and he looks at my mom and he doesn't speak. And he goes, I love you. And um, my mom says, Roy, I'm going to heaven. And my dad says, I'll race you. And then he walked out. I got to go. Gave her that little bit of humor, that wit that was always so great. And then he was gone. And then mom went to be with the Lord. That was a really profound moment. And as I, I pondered that, my mom's passing was one of peace. I've been at the bedside of hundreds of people who have gone into eternity. And that was one of the most profound moments. And she, she left this earth with a, a peace that surpasses all understanding. And she was reconciling and waiting for people to arrive, to say goodbye. She, it was like she had those 48 hours. The Lord's got it. And there's one woman who's going to take advantage of it. I've got to see him. I've got to see him. Now, there's others that want him dead. They're plotting to kill him. They want him wiped off the face of the earth. And the clock is ticking. But in the midst of, of these folks seeking his demise, there's a woman that comes rushing in. Look at verse six with me. Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. A woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil. By the way, alabaster flask, it's, it's just beautifully created and shaped. It takes an enormous amount of time. It would have a lid on it that was sealed with wax. When that seal was broken, the value would be decreased because the longer it stayed in the flask, the more that the, the, the elements would permeate this very pure virgin olive oil. And it was, it was a, a fragrance. And the longer it stayed in, the more fragrant the oil became. And so it was like a bottle of wine. The older it was, the more valuable it was. And this was worth a year's wages, a denarii. It's, it's, it's like $40,000 in today's estimates. And you're thinking, perfume for 40000 Remember, this is back when they didn't take showers. They didn't have deodorant. I mean, it's like, we need a lot of that. And it was limited in supply because it took so long to produce, right? 
And, and this was the, the, the ply of many of the prostitutes. This is how they would draw their, their clients in by the perfume. Well, here Mary has it. It wasn't just prostitutes that had the oil. You know, noble women had the oil. And Mary was a, a, a woman of nobility. Mary and Martha and Lazarus were there. Simon the leper was the father. He was probably dead. Lazarus was the kinsman redeemer taking care of his two sisters with the estate. They were well off. They were able to host a meal. And, and as they come in, Mary... Who, who the Lord loved, she takes this, the other accounts say it's Mary, she takes the lid off of it and she begins to anoint his head with this fragrant oil and poured it on his head. Now imagine this, pouring it. It doesn't say dropping it, pouring it. It's just, it's olive oil. Just going into his clothes, you know, just, it's just all over him. And the whole room, and the fragrance is being diffused and everything. And just dripping, dripping, dripping. Got that? It's in his clothing. It's not like I'm going to go change my clothes. You didn't change your clothes. You had one set of clothing. When Jesus died, those are his garments. That's it. His hair's covered in it. 48 hours later, he's going to be gone. But his body is completely covered in this oil. And, 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 and she, he sat at the table while she did this. And then verse eight, but when his disciples saw it, they were indignant. They were furious. And the one leading the pack, as we see in, in Mark 14, and also in, in John's account in, in John 12, the one leading the pack is Judas. He's the one stirring up the disciples. What is this waste? And it, and it wasn't the first time that we've done this. We, we, this is the second person that's poured this oil over his head. What a waste of money. And the disciples, yes, it's a waste of money. He's going to be dead in 48 hours. You're wasting money. I don't know. Just seems odd to me. Mark says it was two days, after two days, it was a Passover. John said six days before the Passover. So all three of these accounts fall in line and they're all indignant. And and in John's account, it clearly says that it's Judas who instigated it. Why this waste? This is ridiculous. And the whole room is filled with the smell. This is awful. Just furious. We could have given it to the poor. The other account says that Judas was stealing he didn't give a rip about the poor. That could have been money in my bag when you're gone. Jesus was aware of it. Verse 10, he said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. From pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Now, this, this fragrance filling the room, first of all, it was her alabaster jar. She can do with it as she pleases. Judas is saying, well, why didn't you give it to the master? Because we could have sold it and put it in the money bag for me. He was ripping them off. And this was so infuriating that it tripped a switch in Judas's head. Watch this, verse 14. One of the 12 called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, look, I'm done with this guy. That's, I've had it. I've had it. I don't care. What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? Just, just name a price. I'm, I'm sick of it. Name a price. And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And from that time on, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Just name a price. I'm sick of him. Name a price. 
I'm not watching this again. So this oil, this fragrance trips something in his head. And by the way, as I've said often, of all the five senses of the human body, sight, smell, taste, touch, hearing, you know, all that, the number one sense for memory recollection is the olfactory sense, the sense of smell. That's why women use perfume. You never forget them. And men use cologne. You never forget them. You know what I'm saying? Perfume. Memory recollection. You smell it. Where is she? Right? Women know what they're doing. Men are trying. Men, bacon is not a fragrance. (laughs) Women, if you wore bacon... (laughs) That's what I'm saying. (laughs) But this smell tripped a switch or flipped a switch in Judas's mind to go, look, I'm done. Tell me what, tell me what you'll give for his betrayal. Just name your price. I don't, I don't, whatever you say, I agree to. He didn't even barter with him. 30 pieces. Fine. So this oil put him over the top. This fragrance put him over the top. I built this whole case Because the passage that scholars believe shouldn't be in the text, in addition to the fourth account of a woman pouring oil over his head that isn't connected with the other three, tells us why Judas flipped out. So, let's take a look at them. Turn with me, if you would, to uh, John chapter 7. At the very end. And if you have one of these nearly inspired versions, it may not exist. If you have a New King James Version, it will exist. John chapter 7, and it's the very last verse, verse 53. Verse 53. And then it goes through to John 8, 11. Let's take a look at it. Oh, by the way, by the way, who's Judas's dad? Simon. Thank you. Okay, let's come on back. Here we go. Everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Verse 2 of John chapter 8. Now early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him. Where is he? He's in the temple. This is where the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin hang out. He went to the temple. All the people came to him. He sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had, and by the way, having been caught in adultery, did she have time to change? No. Matter of fact, they brought her to him. And when they had set her in the midst, verse 4, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now, Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that he might have something of which to accuse him. You see, they grabbed her close by and brought her. Now, for adultery to occur, where's the dude? Interestingly enough, they caught her in the act and brought her, and they were looking for an opportunity to trip him up. The law says to stone her. They didn't bring the man. Why? He was a Pharisee, probably. 
or a scribe. They didn't want to expose him. And Jesus was gathering in the temple. Let's take this adulterous woman. Everyone knows. And let's just bring her to him and see what Jesus does. They're in the temple. The Pharisees and the scribes found her. They obviously knew where to look. Somebody has a lunch appointment every Thursday at... You're tracking me. Look at, uh, look at verse 6. This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his fingers, though he did not hear. Look, you can see it in the picture. He stoops down and he begins to write as though he didn't even hear them. He's just writing in the ground. It's like, what are you doing? It's bizarre. He's just writing. So when he continued, so when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, who is without sin among you? Let, a th- let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And those who heard it began uh, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest to even the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? <laughs> Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He saves her life by kneeling down and beginning to write in the dirt. And then he stands up and he says, go ahead and stone her if you're without sin. And then he gets back down and he starts writing again. And one by one, they're peeling off. What in the world did he write? We can surmise it. And maybe the passage doesn't even exist. And why would John drop it in here? John, if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke chronologically in a chronological order of the gospels, it's really easy to follow you follow Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is the Picasso of the gospels. He puts things where they don't belong all over the place. It's crazy. He's the Picasso of the gospels. He drops this in and in dropping this in, he gives this picture as we see of this woman and, and Jesus is writing in the ground. What's he writing? I, I think he's writing the name of the guy that was with her. And they're like, whoa, I thought only we knew about Wednesdays. And then he begins to write other names along with the name of the other person that they meet on Thursdays. By the, the Bible says all things are laid bare before the eyes of God. You all look beautiful and handsome. You brought yourselves in here. But between that little facade and surface, there's stuff. (laughs) The room is filled with it. I was watching a plumber yesterday over at the One Love Church on Skyline, and they broke a main valve going out to the street, and they can't use their toilets. We can. There's a line, but we can use the toilets here. And and as I'm watching the plumber, I go, you know, our jobs are the same. He goes, how's that? I go, we're just trying to get this stuff through the system. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Just get it out of here. It's filthy. Just get it out of here. You know what I'm saying? And maybe you don't. I I thought it. (laughs) He liked it. But, But this is the idea that he's writing it on the sand and everyone one by one begins to throw the stones down. And and here's the thing. My sin looks really awful on you. Ponder that. Let me say it again. My sin looks really bad on you. And that's where we can get so furious. Kill her! 
stoner. She's an adulteress. That's just vile. What kind of a person would even think of stepping into a church? <laughs> Wearing that, oh my goodness, that's awful. And the Lord begins to write. How long would it take us to write something in the ground that everyone would <laughs> Pretty cool placement, I think. And everyone peels away and he looks at her and he says, where are your accusers? He says, there aren't any. See, the Bible says that we sin against the Lord. Against him and him alone do we sin. And we've done this evil in his sight. And the reason why the rest peeled off and weren't willing to stone her is because they were as guilty as she was. So, does this passage exist? Why did John put it there? I don't know. But I do know this of the passage itself, I want to know who that woman is. Well, I think that's what Luke did. We've got the three accounts of Matthew, Mark, and John, but Luke gives us another woman. Turn to Luke 7, if you would. Let's find out who this woman is. Oh, 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 stop. Who's Judas's dad? Okay, turn. Okay. Luke chapter 7, verse 36, let's pick up. Then one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner prostitute, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair and head. She kissed his feet and anointed them with a fragrant oil. So the oil's filling the room. <laughs> now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who's touching him. She's a sinner. Where's my Perrier? <laughs> and Jesus answered and said to him, I'm sorry, who? Okay, let's keep reading. Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Who answered? Who answered? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who... He forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman, Simon? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. How did Jesus betray, or how did Judas betray Jesus? With a kiss. Keep that in mind. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. Verse 46, you did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with a fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? 
And then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Shalom. Go in peace. Hmm. Interesting. Not the same woman in Luke as it is in Matthew, Mark, and John. But the woman in Luke is like the woman in John 8. Both prostitutes. Both sinful women. Both forgiven. Both connected to a Pharisee. Interesting. Interesting that Jesus would say of Judas that he's the one that I broke bread with. You remember, we see that John is out of sync, but here we have the picture of the woman washing Jesus' feet, the prostitute. This is what we just read in Luke chapter 7. We don't have a name for her, but we think that she's tied in with John 8. And then we come to Mary, who is washing Jesus' feet. In both cases, oil is poured over, in this case, I should say, with, with, with Mary, the oil's poured all over Jesus' head. In the prostitute's case, it's just his feet, but the oil has permeated the room, the fragrance of Christ, as it says in Corinthians, the aroma of life to some and the aroma of death who are perishing. And it just splits the room. And, and when the oil starts coming out, those are going, who are you? let's kill him in 48 hours. And Judas said, that's it. This is, this is the straw that broke the camel's back. Keep, tell me what you'll give me. I'll, he's dead. I'll betray him. That oil just infuriated him. It infuriated him. Why? What happened in Simon's home? That Judas would say, 30 pieces of silver, you got a deal. And 48 hours later, he'd be walking away, seeing Jesus hanging on a cross. What tripped? Supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him. Yes, my own familiar friend and whom I trusted, which did eat my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Judas watched miracle after miracle. He saw Jesus walk on water. He saw, he went out in twos and cast out demons. He witnessed miracles. He saw the feeding of thousands. He witnessed the demoniacs being healed, the blind seeing, the lame walking, the lepers being healed. He was in the house of Simon the leper. He witnessed Lazarus rising from the dead. What tripped that he would melt and betray his master. One thing, that fragrance just infuriated him. And it was, it was toxic. It even infected the other disciples. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. He's using it out of the passage of 2 Samuel chapter 17. This is the Ahithophel Psalm. When Ahithophel saw that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey and set out for his house and his hometown. He put his house in order and then hanged himself. And so he died and was buried in his father's tomb. Then 
Then Judas threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. The next picture is graphic. Prepare yourself. Both these men hang themselves. Who was Judas's dad again? Simon. If it's the Simon in the passage we read in Luke 7, I would think that Judas would flip out You humiliated my father, my family. He was an upstanding Pharisee. Even if that's not the case, you're talking to me about forgiveness. You're pulling that stunt on me. I gave up everything to follow you. There's not even enough money in the bag. You're going to be dead in 48 hours. This is what I gave up. Whether it's my father that you humiliated or the calling that didn't add up to what I expected. Either way, I'm sick of you and I don't want to smell that stupid oil again. Because the oil the first time angered him and the oil the second time put him over the edge. The aroma of death. Tell me what you'll give me for him. I'll take any price. I'm done with this. And it's fascinating that the Lord would use a prophetic statement attributed to Hithophel. And I'm going to finish with this. I love this story of Ahithophel. Four characters in the story, and it's out of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 17, actually goes 15, 16, 17. Ahithophel was a Gileonite. He was a transplant to Judaism. Ahithophel was David's most trusted counselor. It's said in the scriptures of Ahithophel that when he spoke... It was as though God himself were speaking. He was so unbelievably wise. And a king needs counselors like that. Ahithophel had served David his entire life. And Ahithophel would give him wise counsel and David's kingdom grew under Ahithophel's wisdom. Yes. And Ahithophel would worship with David and go to the temple with David and break bread with David. And when David needed him most, when David was old and his body was giving out, his son Absalom, this, you know, Favio-haired young man who was raised as an absolute spoiled, rotten brat, rebelled against his father and started to take the kingdom from his dad. And lo and behold, in the midst of the greatest trial, David's best friend bailed on him. David's crushed. He writes that Psalm, Psalm 41. Jesus would quote it as a a prophecy related to Judas who hung himself just like Ahithophel did. And David's so stunned as he's penning this Psalm and thinking about this man who's betrayed him. And he says, God, I'm finished. If Ahithophel sides with Absalom, Ahithophel's wisdom is gonna bring me to the end. He just got... He just got the queen on the chessboard. I'm done. I don't have any options. And David says a prayer. He says, God, would you please 
thwart, stop the counsel of Ahithophel to Absalom. Please, God. While David's praying, a guy named Hushai comes in. And Hushai's a counselor, not as elevated as Ahithophel. Hushai shows up and says, David, I'm with you. He's like, great, I'm glad you're here, but you're like AAA. I needed Ahithophel, but thanks for coming. Well, I'm here to serve you. He goes, I don't need you here. If you want to help me at all, I need you to go and get into Hithophel, or to Absalom's camp and weasel your way in there and stop the counsel of Ahithophel because if Absalom listens to Ahithophel, I'm finished. He goes, you bet, king. Hushai goes off. He weasels his way into the kingdom. Absalom's like, wow, we got Hushai and Ahithophel. We're going to win this bad boy. He says, what do we do, fellas? Now that I have my cabinet, Ahithophel says, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We need to strike right now. David is wily and he's going to mass an army around him and he has ways to get around it. We, we got to get him while he's weak. He's aged. He's going to cross that Jordan. We got to stop him now. Let me just take a handful of guys. I'll ride into town. When I'm riding in to go get him, I want you to go up onto the top of the palace and I want you to violate his concubines in the presence of all of Israel. I want you to humiliate him and then I'm going to go find him and I personally will run a spear through his chest and we'll call it a day and this entire thing will be over and you'll be king. And all I want is to kill David. That's it. Absalom's like, whoa. Okay. Um, Hushai, do you have any advice? Because Ahithophel is really fired up here. <laughs> and Hushai goes, the counsel of Ahithophel is not wise, O king. And Hushai is kind of smart. He says, I don't know if I can thwart the counsel of Ahithophel, but I can certainly appeal to the ego of Absalom. He says, king, Let's amass the armies and imagine yourself in a, a, a big steed in front of the armies and your hair, Fabio flowing hair in front of them as all the armies have amassed around you and you're marching and David and all of those, they'll melt like a hot knife through butter. I added that part and they will just, they'll melt. And Absalom's looking at his picture of himself in that vision. Yes, yes, yes. This is good. You are one sharp cookie, Mr. Hushai. You, Ahithophel, no good. And as we know, after he didn't take the counsel of Ahithophel, Ahithophel saw his advice had not been followed. He saddled his donkey, set out for his house in his hometown, put his house in order, then hanged himself and he died and was buried in his father's tomb, just like Judas. And that's what they did. Now, I share that with you because Second Samuel 1714, almost finished. Stay with me. So Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai the Archite is better than the advice of Ahithophel. Now watch this. For the Lord had purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. God answered David's prayer. Isn't that cool? Wait a minute. Hang on. Hang on. Ahithophel. What did he do wrong? I mean, Ahithophel served David. He was a Gileanite. He, he came to Judaism. He served David his whole life. Let me just tell you a little bit about Ahithophel before you get so uppity. <laughs> Ahithophel had a son. His name was Eliam. Eliam was one of David's mighty men in 2 Samuel 23. He served David just like Ahithophel did. He served him in battle and got what would be considered a medal of honor. And Eliam had a daughter. Ahithophel had a son, Eliam. Eliam had a daughter. Her name was Bathsheba. 
David committed adultery with Ahithophel's granddaughter and murdered Ahithophel's grandson-in-law. David's a murderer and a liar. Those are two sins for which there's no sacrifice in all of Israel. And God thwarted the counsel of Ahithophel? He got the wrong guy. Ahithophel was faithful and he served. And don't think there aren't any secrets in the palace, Simon. Everybody knows what's going on as Jesus writes his finger in the dirt. They all knew what David did. They knew what Bathsheba did. They know how Uriah died. They know that David put a hit on him. How come Ahithophel got thwarted? Why didn't David? David was a liar. David was the murderer. What's the deal? The deal is this. And it will always be this. Read it. Take it in. The fragrance of forgiveness nauseates you, doesn't it? That pain's too much to let go of. I'll never forget what my mom said to me in those moments. Wisdom she would impart as she was preparing to step into eternity. We revisited a story, many stories. One in particular is Michelle almost died after her first pregnancy. It was a miscarriage. It was awful. Then Molly was born. Kelly was born. Then Michelle had another miscarriage. It was frightening because the first miscarriage scared her. And after that, we thought, let's just, let's just call it quits for a while. And we, we were living in this dump of a house on Meridian and Hillsdale. It was, it was leaning. It was, we were so poor, we couldn't pay attention. <laughs> and I was up in the morning doing my devotions And the Lord gives me Psalm 127, that your sons will be as olive shoots around your table. I had two girls. I'm like, Lord, I don't have any sons. And the Lord spoke to my heart as clear as the nose is on my face and said, you're going to have boys. I'm like, God, that's so cool. And I went in, I woke up, Michelle, God just spoke to me. She goes, no, he didn't. (laughs) And time passed, and Michelle comes in with a pregnancy stick, wakes me up in the morning. And it didn't wake me up. I was having my devotion. She comes in, and she shows me the pregnancy stick. I go, wow. He, he, he's serious. Yeah. And we were so excited. We, we didn't want to take, you know, the, the test to see if it was a boy or a girl. We knew it was a boy. And we said, let's pray separately about a name and we'll put it in an envelope. And we'll open it at Christmas. He's like, okay. And so we pray and we write down the name and we put it in the envelope and, and then we, we take the sex as a baby as, you know, we put it in the envelope so we didn't look and we open it up and both of us had Daniel written down. We're like, that's God, you rock. This is awesome, just <laughs> awesome. And, and I, I called my mom. I go, mom, and this is a story she was recounting in the hospital. I go, mom, we're going to have a boy. Oh, that's exciting. What are you going to name him? Daniel. She gets upset. No grandchild of mine will be named Daniel. Oh, Really? Mom, it's Daniel. What are you talking? She hangs up. She's so upset. I'm like, whoa. I call her back. You can't hang up. She goes, I- I'm only going to tell you this once. I go, what? She says, what's your grandfather's name? What was my father's name? 
I go, I have no idea. You never talked about him. His name was Daniel Frank McKee. And he was the most awful man that ever lived. And no grandchild of mine will be named Daniel. That's the end of the discussion. I said, I understand. No grandchild will be named Daniel except for our little boy, Daniel. (laughs) God's voice is more serious than yours. And she was upset. And Michelle testified to this. When, when, When Daniel was born, it was a cathartic experience for my mother. She held him in her arms. She had a unique connection to Daniel. She just kept repeating his name. And it was almost like this fragrance started to change. And it says in Ecclesiastes 7.1 that a good name is like a precious fragrance. Better is a day of a man's death than the day of his birth. The fragrance of Daniel was a stench to my mother, Daniel Frank McKee. But with this little boy in her arms with a hope of a future, it all of a sudden changed. And she was able to see as time went on, as she came to Christ, this, this, this joy of forgiveness, the fragrance of forgiveness. And I share this with you because the one thing The one thing that Judas couldn't do was forgive. The one thing Ahithophel couldn't do was forgive, but one thing David could do was forgive. And that's why God didn't get the wrong guy. He got the right guy. You see, the scripture says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone is a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Ready? I'll let you out when we get this done. Everyone repeat after me. I'm going to say it and then you'll repeat it when I do it the second time. First time I'm going to do it by myself. I was wrong. Ready? One, two, three. I was wrong. Let's do it this way. I am wrong. And then, will you forgive me? Will you please forgive me? Why is it so hard for people to say that? Why does pride keep you from the fragrance of forgiveness? Why is that such a stench that puts you over the edge? Why do you get so upset? I am wrong. I am sorry. Will you forgive me? And why does this, this fragrance of forgiveness become such a stench that it puts you over the edge that you don't have the ability to say, I forgive you? You've witnessed the miracles. You're in church. You've seen what God can do. Lives have been delivered. You're not unlike Judas. So your family will be hurt. So your life will be changed. Ask Angela as her father left her. Ask my mom as she recited the name Daniel and there was given the key to get out of that prison that that awful man had kept her in her whole life. I don't know what that man did. I have no idea, but I can tell you this, to scar a woman into her 80s? And what did Jesus say on the cross? Forgive them. To tell us, Ty, it's finished. It's paid in full. I took care of your sin. Now take care of it with each other. That's the body of Christ. This is the currency of Christendom. I was wrong. I am wrong. Are those words hard for you to say? Get over it. I forgive you. 
Will you forgive me? Own it. It's your pride that keeps you from being humbled. Pride keeps you out of the kingdom. It keeps you out of the kingdom. Neither will your father forgive your trespasses. It's not an option. Ahithophel thought it was. It isn't. David, the liar and the murderer, his lineage is in the line of Jesus. Forgiveness does wonders, doesn't it? Unforgiveness causes you to be a Lego. So let go. I just did that right now. Just right now. Of your bitterness. And let the Lord forgive you. And forgive one another as he's forgiven you.